Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, December the 29th, 2023, the last Friday in 2023. We're almost in 2024, I'm sure. Once we're there, there'll be all sorts of talk about how it's the final year in the first quarter of the 21st century, almost then in the second quarter of the 21st century. We're steaming ahead into the future, but it seems as if the faster we go into the future, the faster we go back to lots of interesting uh, news about the resurgence of vinyl records. Um, apparently, the more vinyl records were sold uh, last week than uh, since the turn of the century, the people driving the resale or the sale of uh, vinyl records, Taylor Swift and the Rolling Stones, neither the most futuristic. Swift is interesting in her own right. Um, So the further we move forward, the more nostalgic we are perhaps for previous technologies, although it adds to some moral complexity. CNN has a piece about how the music business is now is trying to put a green spin on vinyl records. It's tricky, uh, but interesting. And as I saw those headlines, I thought of my guest today. Uh, Hari Kanzra is um, a very well-known writer, uh, journalist. He looks forward and backward simultaneously. He's worked for Wired magazine, uh, and he spent the last few months in Rome in record stores, digging into the crates, according to his latest column in Harper's. He's joining us from Rome, from a rather dark room. Is it uh, Harry at the American Academy? Are you in a dark room? That, you- that's right. Yes, I'm, I'm in a room full of uh, books on early ecclesiastical history in the American Academy in Rome, up on top of a hill. Harry, uh, I'm sure you're more familiar with Walter Benja- Benjamin than I am, but it always seemed to me, and I never haven't really read him with that much care, that he was the guy who explained uh, why we fetishize old technologies. Does I, I'm not sure how familiar you are with him, but your your latest column in Harper's is about your retreat, if that's the right word, into the the record stores of Rome. What is it about vinyl that uh, makes us all, I don't know whether we're nostalgic for the past or the future? Well, there is something about the the aura of a physical object, I think. I mean, you know, like everybody, I mostly listen to music on a computer and and I love the convenience of being able to find things. You know, the, the distance between first hearing about something and being able to listen to it is you know seconds now but um records vinyl records in particular um they convey a lot more information in some ways i mean they you know there there's information in the kind of in the packaging in the in the kind of context in which you you find them i mean and i'm um i'm on a sort of strange kind of double track these days for years i lived without uh, i mean i moved from the uk to the us and i didn't take any records with me and for a long time, I lived without my record collection. And then I, I mo- finally moved into somewhere where I could have it with me. And all these uh, dusty boxes turned up. 
you know, some of which kind of contained treasures and others of which I couldn't quite believe I'd paid for storing for so many years. But I've drifted back in the last two two years, really, into collecting records. And it's kind of a nice leisure activity when you're visiting somewhere new to try and kind of work out, I don't know, the, a kind of particular sort of cultural layer of a place through digging around in, in old stores. It's like, it's like secondhand bookstores as well. I'm sure you're, you know, somebody who does that too. Um, but yeah, for me, it's, I don't know whether it's fetishistic particularly, although there is something, there is something exciting about holding an object which was in a particular place at a particular time. I mean, then maybe that is a, a kind of fetishistic connection. But but for me, I find that there's a lot other than the actual sound that kind of comes along with a vinyl record. It seems as if these sales are being driven by young people who are rediscovering the old format. Um, as you say, you gave it up. We all embrace digital and then we realize the limitations on digital. Do you think that um, there is something weird about this rediscovery of vinyl? What, what, what do you make of it when people come up to you? I know you've got kids, younger people come up to you and say, oh, vinyl, that's the thing. When we all bought into the, the digital promise and maybe some of us now are disappointed. The one that I find quite funny is that people go back to tape cassettes because that really is a trashing medium. Yeah, that that's I mean, the new. That's that's the one that the real cool kids they don't do vinyl now; they do tape. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a whole scene of 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 kind of producing cassette only releases, and I mean, as somebody who spent more than my fair share of time kind of trying to respool uh, mangled tape back into sort of beloved plastic shelled cassettes I can't, I can't I can't say I'm particularly nostalgic for for that for that format I don't know there there's something about slowing down that I think is interesting there's something about the sort of intentionality that you have to have to put on a record you have to get the thing out you put it on the turntable do this sort of delicate thing with a tone arm and then put put the needle down on the on the vinyl record and and I don't know, maybe that produces a certain sort of attention, a certain sort of pleasure. Um, I sometimes think I can hear a difference, but I'm not as convinced as some people are about the uh, about the the kind of superiority of, of, of a vinyl sound over a very, very good digital file. Um, I mean, there are many technical things that happen in between a, the diamond stylus and your ear so i mean I'm, I'm probably not the person to to make any kind of judgment about that but for me i think partly it's it's a tactile thing it's a visual thing i mean it's certainly a 33 album sleeve is quite a big object and you get a large picture and you can get a lot of text on that uh on that thing and um you know, as I've been, you know, I often find out things by looking at kind of liner notes or, or, or even, you know, dates and, you know, even the, even the kind of, I don't know, the, the previous owner's name on an old record. I haven't got so into buying, you know, new releases on, on vinyl, one or two things. But for me, it's more a way of, of kind of connecting with, with a particular kind of previous music, music culture. As a kind of synergy in the piece, uh, this latest piece in Harper's Digging in the Crates, you talk about um, vinyl as a tactile thing, but you present Rome as, quote unquote, a tactile thing. Tell me what you've been doing and, and what is it about Rome 
and not just record stores, but wandering around the old city that makes it such a tactile place. It is a kind of extraordinary city, really. I mean, it's been continuously inhabited and and kind of um, and sort of continuously redeveloped, but never perfectly like in the way that you know uh land values in manhattan or something as such that you you can't have any sentimentality about old structures so unless something is kind of perfectly preserved it vanishes completely whereas here there are bits of old wall get kind of built around and then other things get built on top of them and then things get sort of half forgotten it's a very um strange and jumbled sort of cityscape i mean the the center of rome you know, it has no tall buildings. There's a the ordinances that mean that nobody can build higher than the the roof line. So you have this ancient roof line, and you have a medieval streetscape, and you get very very used to just living in a in a sort of ordinary way with a built environment that would probably be either kind of preserved in a museum like way or obliterated or just carted off to 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 a museum. I mean, there you know bits of I live next to the 16th century, 17th century city walls, and you know, there's a where there's a gap in the wall. That gap is because the French cannon in 1849 blew a hole in it, and it's some you know they had to build a new gate in that particular place. And then just down the down the hill under where I'm I'm living in the American Academy is a is a the remains of an, a Roman aqueduct, and I've been, I have an office in a in a building which was where uh, Galileo demonstrated the thing that his friend suggested he call a telescope. Um, so that that presence of the past and in a, in a kind of casual way, I guess, is is the thing that makes it extraordinary. And, um, and so I've been enjoying that, but that is a kind of, it is a sort of overwhelming thing as well. People come here, and especially I'm surrounded at this institution by classicists and art historians. Who are here very specifically to to kind of engage with the this sort of ancient history of uh, of of Rome, and so it, it became interesting to me to think about the history of like 30, 40, 50 years ago, the post-war history, which is you know partly a media history, is partly a, history, a political history, like things that leave very fleeting traces on the uh, on the physical environment. Yeah, I want to get to that history, but. How is it for you being, as a novelist, being in this casually layered place? Is it frustrating? Uh, You've you got a, a new book coming out, I think, in the spring. I, I don't know anything about it, but I want to get you back on the show to talk about it, called um, Blue, Blue Ruin. Ruin. It, it, it must be challenging, frustrating, inspiring as a novelist to to be in a place which is almost like a novel. I mean, there are there are endless sort of half ideas for historical stories that float through my head here, and then I, I tend to be kind of overwhelmed with the uh, the amount of research it would it would take to to do most of them uh, halfway decently. But I, I mean, it wasn't to be honest; it wasn't a city that I had a particular connection with before I came here, or or a particular um yearning to to live in and so i've been surprised in the way that it's opened up i mean i mean because of the history of italy you know italy was obviously only unified as a country relatively historically recently there's a real regionalism here and so there's a kind of culture around milan and there's a culture around naples it's very different from rome and so rome although it's a capital city 
uh, it's also in some ways quite a provincial city. It's a kind of enclosed place. And where I'm living is very close to uh, the Vatican. And there are a lot of religious institutions, quite mysterious Catholic institutions devoted to things like writing rule books for missionaries or uh, judging recondite uh, aspects of canon law. And so you have a sense of this kind of continuity, this enormous, slow moving power that's been here for millennia. And, you know, there's a kind of that's the sort of aspect to this city. It's an old and cynical uh, devious kind of a place. You know, it's a bit sort of uh, uh, rough on the outside. It's you know the pavements are, are, are broken up and the, and the, the walls are uh, are tumbling down. But there's 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 a, a kind of deep core to the place. That's it's kind of fascinating actually. To you know the hints that you get of it. It must be in jarring contrast. <laughs> to Brooklyn where you live, I know you're going back in a few days, uh, very different, the opposite in many ways. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, you know, one of the sort of tracks of research I have at the moment is to do with AI and, and, and all these kind of new developments in tech, and that feels almost kind of comically distant from from this place, you know, walking around and, you know, places, uh, I don't know streetscapes of shops selling cassocks and and supplies for for the priesthood and uh, bits and pieces of Roman statuary littering the place. But um, in in a way, that's quite that's quite nice. I mean, there's there's I like I like experiencing that chasm. I mean, I I toy with the idea of, of staying here longer, and I wonder what it would be like to live here to make this your reality your full-time reality but uh um it's certainly uh as you say it's a contrast to brooklyn not that brooklyn's a sort of hyper modern place it's a strange kind of 19th century uh infrastructure that uh often kind of uh lets you down in 19th century ways i'm thinking particularly about the sewage system and the the drains and you know it's a it, as, as climate change takes hold lots of brooklyn is is kind of essentially reverting to swamp um but yeah there is that that kind of pace and that sort of modernity and the uh, and the kind of uh uh i don't know the you know the the go-getting new york spirit i suppose is rather different from the the roman spirit we are speaking with Hari Kunzra, the, uh, Kunzru, the uh, Easy Chair columnist at Harper's, uh, a distinguished novelist, author of, 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 of many books. I'm not going to read them all out, but if you're looking on the screen, everything from uh, White Tears to Gods Without Men, everyone knows his work. Um, Hari, uh, you mentioned uh, AI. Your 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 life as a novelist. Um, you've also written extensively for Wired. I think you were once a columnist there or a reporter. You've had some intimate experience with AI. You got involved in a big fight, like many writers, about uh, uh, AI and whether or not it's stealing from us. One with Prosecraft. Uh, you gave an interesting interview in GQ on your disappointment with chat GPT. What's your take on all this? And, 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 and say something about this prose craft thing that you got sucked into. I mean, that that's a kind of, in a way, that's a sort of lesson on, on 
you know what happens on twitter when you half look at something in a on the subway and ask a question on twitter i mean this i wasn't sure at the time whether this was a company that was uh, was scraping together a large database of stolen books and intending to sell a commercial product that's what it seemed to be it turned out to be a kind of one man band who was trying to do some sort of analysis using a, a a library of books that he'd assembled without copyright on the on the internet so you know he turned out not you know not to be the the uh what i feared it was i mean you know i mean since then we're seeing much more kind of significant things happening what do you make of um, some of these writers who are suing OpenAI and some of the other platforms. Do you think there's a case? Uh, this week, of course, the big news is that the New York Times is suing OpenAI. Well, I mean, there's, there, there's two different things. I mean, firstly, I mean, OpenAI, I think, clearly have a, a case to answer. They've, tra they've trained their, their model on our work. I mean, and, you know, and there's, I don't know what the kind of appropriate compensation for that is, but those rights were not offered. And those rights were not granted um and you know these people you know open ai and other similar companies treat their models as as uh, intellectual property that's very valuable and needs to be protected and so uh i think there is a case to answer there the new york times one is interesting from what i know about it the times is is seeking the destruction of any model that has been trained using times content and as they know very well all the models have been trained using more or less more or less everything that's on the open internet including you know copyrighted material that belongs to the new york times so what kind of remedy will eventually be settled i don't know i mean i would have thought that um the executives making the decisions about these kind of things that the tech companies will have priced these sort of suits into the uh into their uh thinking about the costs of doing business i mean i heard a, an interview recently with another senior tech executive who was very keen on um models models proliferating as much as possible and suggesting that uh people relocate to india and then forcing copyright holders to fight uh through the indian courts for uh for remedy for for copyright infringement uh you know basically you know imposing a, a kind of set of costs and a, and a very small chance of actually uh, of actually winning so i mean there's clearly uh, a very sort of major cultural fight happening about uh, about the value of creative work about what kind of compensation should be offered for the use of uh, of people's creative work as training data i mean i think everybody looks at what's happened to illustration and illustrators now being in kind of competition with models trained using their work uh, and able to produce their styles um as a novelist and a columnist i'm not immediately so worried i mean that's not to say that a new uh, a new kind of model couldn't come out quite soon that would be more able to reproduce the kind of work i do but already i would be concerned if i was somebody who for example was a paralegal uh, or doing any kind of text-based work that involved flowing content into a fairly sort of straightforward format or or grid so harry gonna... uh, some people out here tech people people like vinod kosla might be listening and saying well, we're all borrowing from your language. We're all digging crates. You've written this 
lovely piece for Harper's about Rome, but you're not giving anything back to Rome. You're borrowing from the past, as all writers, all creative people do. What's the difference between your you're saying what's the difference between taking hmm. from Rome, and I, and, and I use that word very liberally, and the way in which AI takes from writers? I mean, I mean I'm, I'm not then going to kind of uh, i mean I, I suppose it's the difference between quotation and training data um you know i would have i i would say that um you know obviously no you know there's a there's a kind of element in you know of enclosure i suppose would be the the most interesting way i can think of to talk about this i mean is there there's such a thing as the commons and the kind of information commons. As you say, I can kind of, I can walk around this place and I can look at things and I can read things and, and I can assemble a new piece of work using the things that I found and, and uh, helped me to think. Um, I'm not then uh, trying to own all that material. And then, and then uh, you know, you could, you know, when I say enclosure, I, I mean as a sort of analogy to the, um, Mm. To, to what happened in you know in the the sort of late medieval early modern period when huge areas of public land were were fenced off and became kind of private farms um and i think you know the, the cultural commons which is you know which is sort of freely available to all is being enclosed and kind of sold back to us in a certain in, in a certain way with this i mean you know i'm not I'm not somebody who who wants to smash all the machines by any means. I think you know. I think transformer models and large language models are are fascinating technologies. I think they're going to have many beneficial uses. But at the same time, uh, there are um, there are there are some very ruthless economic factors at, at work here. And you know, and I and I think creative people have a have a a reason to be defending themselves and defending our rights in this situation. We are speaking with Hari Kunzra, a very distinguished uh, Anglo-American writer, novelist, journalist. I want to thank I want to thank Harper's for helping line up Hari and I also want to thank Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics which probably should be read side by side with Harper's similar writers and themes who are helping bring this. I'm going to run a short piece about liberties, and I want to come back and talk to Hurry about Maloney and the reality of politics in Italy in the 2020s. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Hari Kunzra, a very distinguished Anglo-American writer, journalist, and the Easy Chair columnist at Harper's. He has a great piece in this issue of Harper's, Digging in the Crates, about his experience in record stores in Rome, but it's more than that. It's about both the modern history of Italy, um, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and the contemporary history. Harry, there was an, I don't know if you saw it, there's a very interesting piece 
in the Wall Street Journal today about this strange new, it's not a bromance, it's a real romance between Elon Musk and Georgia Meloni. Apparently, they've become rather close. Does that surprise you? Not especially. I mean, Musk was a speaker at the youth conference for uh, Fratelli d'Italia, which is uh, Maloney's party, uh, last week. I mean, as was Rishi Sunak, the British prime minister. And both these men had very kind of flirtatious interactions with with Georgia Maloney. And both of them, very interestingly to me, adopted elements of her hard right rhetoric on immigration. I mean, Musk, who is, I think, a very, I mean, maybe sort of smart technologist and a rather loose thinker and some other things, um, strayed right into conspiracy theory territory, talking about uh, the need to, for more white Italians to be, or the need to, for more Italians to be, to be born and not to, uh, uh, not to, uh, substitute the population for immigrants there was a sort of great replacement angle to what he was saying i mean that that i thought was very interesting to hear that kind of rhetoric from him sunak something similar he also had a slightly conspiratorial take on the idea of, of migration um maloney obviously has one of her kind of key platforms is a kind of uh, ethnic ethnic nationalism I and mean, she comes from a party and was a youth activist for her in fact for one of the post-fascist uh uh, parties, the Movimento Sociale d'Italia, which is which has kind of roots in the Salo, the uh, the Social yeah. Republic that Mussolini set up. And you write about the Second World War. You write about that in the in in the Harper's essay. Mm. And and so both, I think it shows how central that kind of political tradition is now becoming to European thought. I mean, especially with uh, you know, there's the new. Uh, Hard right government in the Netherlands. There's a lot of talk about how the the um, well, they're the Rassemblement National these days, aren't they? The uh, uh, the French uh, far right are probably going to to be a viable challenger to Macron and Macronisme in uh, in France. And I think you know Musk is is also very good at telling whatever kind of local audience they want to hear because he has business interests around the world. I don't know what what particular deals he's doing in in Italy but uh but um yeah I think I think it's it's a sign of which way the wind is blowing politically in in Europe and and also the kind of new respectability of a certain sort of rather paranoid anti-immigrant politics yeah as Jacobin magazine notes uh, Maloney has made the far right mainstream you don't need a weatherman to know the way the wind's blowing uh, certainly in your piece you talk also about the politics and the left and the right in Italy, both recent politics and current politics. You talk about Maloney's obsession with Tolkien, which may connect her also with people like Musk. We began this conversation talking about the nostalgia for vinyl. Is that where the vitality of right-wing movements, far right, if that's the right word, Maloney, this, this nostalgia for a, the, the simple world of Tolkien, is that it's where its vitality and its popularity is really coming from? I mean, there's a, 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 a there's a there's a lot lot to be said about the very peculiar role that Tolkien has in Italian far right politics. Um, you know, his the publishing history and the kind of history of take up by far right youth groups from the 1970s onwards gives Tolkien a kind of particular cultural position 
here. I mean, I think in other places he sort of thought of as a, I don't know, not he's a sort of English Tory, really. I mean, he's a sort of you know softly conservative, but you know nothing, nothing to frighten the horses. But uh, but here. Yeah, the the neo-fascist youth in the 70s and 80s used to attend things called hobbit camps which were sort of outdoor festivals of, sort of politics and and music and that was a culture that maloney came up in but, and, Peter, but <clears throat> i take your point but there's a similar fascination with tolkien out here in silicon valley peter Thiel, for example and i'm guessing musk are obsessed with absolutely i mean for, for 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 here in italy i mean you're you're absolutely right to say that the kind of organic ruralist fantasy element is very important the idea of a of a, of a particular kind of of a particular kind of organic european culture interestingly very kind of northern culture i mean there's a sort of there's a strong north south issue in in italy you know the 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 northern Italians have a history of seeing themselves as much more kind of connected to a sort of central, even northern European tradition than the south, which has a very different sort of history. But Tolkien certainly gets deployed in this nostalgic way as a signifier of a particular kind of community that is under threat from globalism, under threat from migration, under threat from all the kind of usual forces that you see uh, arrayed you know, as, as sort of bugaboos of the right. I mean, Teal is a fascinating character, I think, in terms of his interest in in Tolkien. Obviously, he's named all his uh, his companies after after sort of objects and elements from Tolkien, because there he is. You know, he's 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 a representative of of uh, of Mordor in some senses, or certainly of the kind of technical mm. uh, um, imagination which was, you know, something very frightening to Tolkien. You know, I mean, all the kind of the villains in, in Lord of the Rings are engaged in these. Uh, these, you know, sort of erecting fearsome engines and doing various kinds of, of uh, technical work as against the kind of agrarian, you know, or just sort of, I don't know, forest dwelling good guys. Um, but, you know, Teal's kind of trying to balance this sort of populist right thing that he has, that he's promoting in the US with this uh, a set of material interests that I think that are globalist and are, are you know, uh, are kind of transnational and are very much to do with a highly kind of technocratic elite. I mean, I think he's, I mean, he seems to me he's, that his main interest in promoting kind of populism is, is, is because it's kind of disruptive to a kind of East Coast liberal order that he considers uh, to be his enemy. I mean, I have no sense of, of Peter Thiel as a, as a shire dweller, whereas I think I think for the Italian right that it, there is a sense in which they feel themselves to be the hobbits. There's an energy then to the right. What about on, on the left? In your essay, you go back to the 70s and 80s and peasant songs, the radical rebellion. I get you. I'm not sure if you mentioned the Red Brigades, but certainly it's implicit in the essay. Um, is there anything equivalent happening on the left in, in, in Italy or even in, in Brooklyn, which can rival the energetic nostalgia of, of people like Maloney and Musk? I mean, I think I think there is a, there is an energy to the left. I mean, I, you know, I think I think as the let's say the kind of promise of post-war liberalism ceases to deliver a good life to younger people, you know, in basic sort of material terms to do with sort of jobs and home ownership and security and all that kind of thing. They've either broken left or right. And there is a sort of esoteric left politics that is, uh, 
certainly in in the US that uh, that has has kind of sort of swept part of the culture. Um, you know, and I don't just mean the the sort of uh, language based uh, in a social justice politics, but there is a sort of new interest in other kind of forms of of kind of materialist left politics. Here in Italy, I have to say, I don't, I haven't had a kind of exposure to to um, currents of current Italian left thought. I mean, obviously, they have, they are the mainstream politics here have moved very far to the right. Um, but whether, uh, I mean, there is a sort of lot strong kind of autonomous underground tradition in Italy that comes from the 1970s. You know, think of places like Bologna, which still, where there's still a, a kind of culture that kind of, it comes from that 70s left. I mean, uh, it's, I think right now, the the right have have the, the best seats, uh, as I saw on a poster for a Tolkien related event, Tea with Tolkien and the right have all the best seats was what they called it. Um, but I suspect that there are things that they're uh, promising that they can't deliver and that there's a, a sort of disaffection that uh, will match their right-wing energies as well. Yeah, we, a couple of years ago we did um, a show with a historian of liberalism and conservatism, uh, an economist writer, who's talked about the right being more innovative and having, and, and I guess there's some irony here, having white in this perpetual game of chess, it seems as if the Maloneys, the Teals, the Musks, they're playing white again, and it's appropriate given Teal's obsession with chess. And uh, the left or progressives are, are playing defense, which historically hasn't always been the case, has it? No, I mean, I think I think maybe there's a sort of critical reflex uh, that has that has not served the left well in recent years. But I have to say that I also think that these divisions are becoming less useful as ways of of, of identifying people's political orientation. I mean, right now, there's a lot of talk about acceleration and deceleration. There's a kind of there are questions around uh, uh, around not just regulation and deregulation, but okay, about the pace of change and, and preservation. So there are things that you could call deceleration that are conservative goals, uh, you know, some Burkean conservatism. There are things that are kind of acceleration that you could think of as, uh, uh, as, as traditionally left goals, you know, unleashing the forces of production. But so I think there's some strange political bedfellows right now and maybe the, the kind of left-right divisions that we've inherited from that kind of moment in the French Revolution are, are becoming less obvious as, as designators. Perfect scenario for, for a writer like you, Hari. Finally, uh, we are asking everyone this as we teeter on 2024. Uh, 2023 has already been the year of AI. 2024 is going to be even more the age of AI. You know a lot about AI, more than most writers. Um, if there is one issue that AI might solve or could solve? What do you think it could be or should be? God, so many flipping answers to this. Well, you I know, mean, you're AI, welcome AI to be is... flippant as well. I don't care. <laughs> AI, I mean, AI is, is is sort of amazing at searching through complicated spaces for, for plausible routes and outcomes. I mean, I think what I would like to see AI directed towards is the, is the question of a kind of uh, a sort of pl planetary climate governance, for example, I think there are, you know, there are there are ways that AI could help us sense and act on uh, on our 
planet on a planetary scale that might have, might cut through some of the total inaction on on climate change that would be one area um i mean i think i think i'm excited by ai and and things like drug discovery and and various sort of medical medical applications i mean they're apparently doing very well with kind of diagnosis of various kinds um and you know obviously a lot of the action is is in a lot of the kind of media coverage is in things like language models and drawing pictures but i think that's kind of a sideshow to the real the real possibilities for for these models